0: Digital Hammurabi is a website, YouTube channel and podcast dedicated to bringing the history and culture of Mesopotamia to a non-specialist audience. If you've ever heard of Gilgamesh or the laws of Hammurabi, then you've heard of Mesopotamia. I'm Megan Lewis, and together with my husband, a seriologist, Dr Joshua Bowen, I research, write and produce educational content that focuses on Mesopotamian history, language and literature. We also have regular interviews with experts in the field, giving our viewers the opportunity to access new research without having to pay for a journal subscription. Please join us at youtube.com forward slash or at digitalhammerabi.com for more information. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 104, The Democratic Empire Strikes Back. Despite domestic upheaval from 411 to 410 BC, the vigor that the weakened and disorganized Democratic Athenian forces at Samos showed in carrying on the war effort against Sparta was remarkable. Of course, their efforts were aided by the timidness and ineptitude of the Spartan navarch Astyarchus, who commanded the Peloponnesian fleet at Miletus. Initially, he had refused to attack the Athenians under the guise that he was waiting for the arrival of the Phoenician fleet, which Tissaphernes had promised would be forthcoming. But as the months dragged on in early 411 BC, and it became clear that Tissaphernes had duped them again, he began to face mounting pressure and complaints from his Syracusan and Peloponnesian soldiers who demanded that they finally fight a decisive naval engagement. And so, in mid-June of 411 BC, eventually acquiesced to his men and ordered all 112 of their ships to put out to sea, while the Milesians marched by land to Mount Micali, opposite of Samos on the mainland. At this point in early 411 BC, the Athenians had 82 ships stationed at their naval headquarters on Samos so they currently were at a huge numerical disadvantage. And so, when they had received intelligence that the Peloponnesians were desperate to engage them, and therefore were coming in full force, they had sent for Strombikides in the Hellespont to come down with his 26 ships that he had taken previously from Chios to Abydos. As a result, these were already well on their way when the Peloponnesians arrived at Mickele. Immediately, Astiochus began to make preparations to attack the Athenian fleet, but on the next day, according to Thucydides, just when the Peloponnesians were about to sail against the Athenians and force battle or a landing, Strombokides' fleet managed to arrive. The newly reinforced Athenian fleet of now 108 ships, in turn, sailed out against the 112 of the Peloponnesians. Despite the fact that they were almost even in terms of numbers, Astiochus now declined to engage. So the Athenians sailed back to Samos, and the Peloponnesians went back to Miletus. In spite of their internal difficulties, the Athenians managed to restore the balance of power to what it had been the previous winter. The Athenian fleet, although slightly numerically inferior, once again commanded the sea in the eastern Aegean. Their retreat from Samos made the Peloponnesian soldiers and sailors even more irate now, and so they began to increase the pressure on Osteakus to take action. At the same time, the troops' wages, both that of the common soldiers and the higher-ranking officers, continued to be neglected by Tissaphernes, which threatened the Navarch's ability to maintain the fleet. Furthermore, As Astyochus still had not carried out his order from Sparta to send a force under Clearchus to help Pharnabazus in the Hellespont, fortuitously though, an opportunity came knocking on his door that would help him alleviate both of his problems of inactivity and finances. Shortly thereafter, he received an appeal from some Byzantine envoys who came to seek Peloponnesian help if they were to revolt from Athens, as well as a Persian ambassador. With an offer from Pharnabasus to pay for some ships if he brought them to the Hellespont. He was hoping that he could replace Tissaphernes as the main Persian supporter of Sparta. Realizing that his policy to stay in Ionia and trying to work with Tissaphernes was going nowhere, Astyakis decided to take both the Byzantines and Pharnabasus up on their offers. And so, in late July, he finally dispatched Clearchus to the Hellespont with a force of 40 ships. But as they sailed away from the coast, westwards to the open sea, in order to avoid the Athenians at Samos, a sudden Aegean storm, which was not uncommon in the summer, prevented most of the ships from reaching the Hellespont. And so, a majority put in a Delos for safety, and after the sea calmed down, they sailed back to Miletus. Ten ships, though, under a bolder, or perhaps luckier, Megarian general named Helixus, did not stop at Delos but instead pushed forward through the storm and somehow managed to make it safely. Afterwards, they continued on to the Hellespont. Instead of trying to chance a second naval attempt, though, Clearchus this time chose to lead his land forces northward from Miletus. Once at the Hellespont, at some unspecified location, he linked up with the ten ships of Helixus, and together they proceeded to bring about the revolt of Byzantium. Very quickly, the nearby cities of Chalcedon, Cyzicus and Solembria all joined in on the uprising. Afterwards, when the Athenian commanders at Samos were informed of the happenings, they immediately dispatched a small squadron up to the Hellespont, and a minor naval encounter took place in front of Byzantium with eight vessels on both sides. The results were inconclusive, but overall, these events in the summer of 411 B.C. Radically changed the strategic situation. While the Athenians were in turmoil at home, revolts and a Peloponnesian fleet in the Straits now threatened their grain supply and consequently their ability to stay in the war. Similarly, when those at Miletus heard of Alcibiades' recall by the Athenians at Samos, as we discussed last episode, many began to believe that Tissaphernes was now collaborating with the Athenians. And this, combined with their dissatisfaction over his lack of payment, Provoked great anger among the Peloponnesians and especially their Syracusan allies. And very quickly, relations between the Peloponnesian fleet, Astyages, and Tissaphernes went from bad to worse. As we have seen, the fleet's officers had voiced their discontent, aiming it especially at their passive Navarch. Finding him to be too lenient towards Tissaphernes, Soon enough, rumors began to spread that Astyacus had sold his troops' interest to the Persians. Things came to a head when sailors from Syracuse and Thurii demanded that Astyacus secure their pay, and failing to do so, they would pack up and sail home. With an arrogance that was typical of Spartans commanding foreign troops, Astyacus responded by threatening them, and when a Syracusan officer named Arius spoke up for his own sailors, Astyachis raised a club to strike him. Seeing this, the mass of soldiers rushed at the Navark. In the ensuing riot, he was almost killed, but was able to find refuge at a nearby altar. Since it would have been sacrilege to harm him now, the men parted it at once. But this was not the end of Astyachis' woes. The Milesians decided to take advantage of the internal strife, by attacking and expelling the Persian garrison in their fort at Miletus that was built by Tissaphernes, Although this action was taken with the approval of many Peloponnesians and the Syracusans, it was not supported by Lycus. Finally, it was at this point in August that Astiochus was relieved of his duties after just eight months in command. As he set sail for home, Tissaphernes sent a Persian envoy along with him to complain about the Milesians and their fort and to defend the satraps' actions. At the same time, some Milesian envoys and the Syracusan general Hermocrates separately sailed to Sparta in order to denounce Tissaphernes and to accuse him of joining with Alcibiades and ruining the Peloponnesian cause by playing a double game. Tissaphernes naturally wished to clear himself of these charges, so he finally went to prepare the Phoenician fleet at Aspendos. The Peloponnesians thus sent two Spartiates, named Philip and Hippocrates, with two triremes to go and escort the fleet back. But when they arrived, Tissaphernes used the excuse that it was smaller than what the great king had ordered, and so he needed to wait for the additional ships. The two Spartiates, no doubt, left Aspendus very angry. Though it is likely that Tissaphernes never actually intended to bring the fleet, Thucydides does report that 147 ships at least made it as far west as Aspendus, which sat on the Eurymedon River, in the south-central Anatolian region of Pamphylia. He gives various reasons as to why some believe that the fleet didn't come any further, but ultimately decides that the real reason was because Tissaphernes did not wish it so. He never intended to use it, since the intervention of the force on either side would have been decisive in the war. Therefore, he was still following Alcibiades's recommended policy of wearing out both powers. Speaking of Alcibiades, when he discovered that Tissaphernes had gone to Aspendus, he sailed there himself with 13 ships, promising the Athenians that he would bring the fleet to their side, or at least prevent it from joining the Peloponnesians. In all probability, he had long known that Tissaphernes never intended to bring the fleet at all, and so he wished to compromise him as much as possible in the eyes of the Peloponnesians. Mindarus was the Spartan who replaced Astyages as navark, and when he arrived at Miletus and took over command of the fleet, he was already mindful of the duplicity of Tissaphernes and the anger that his forces had towards him. At the same time, Pharnabazus was now inviting him to come with the entire fleet not just a few ships as before, in order to cause a general revolt of all cities in his province who were still subjects of Athens. So when Mendarus received word from Philip and Hippocrates, who were on their way back from Aspendus, and who had made it as far west along the coast to Phacelus, that the reinforcement fleet of Phoenician ships was not coming, and that they were being taken for a spin by Tissaphernes, he made the strategic decision to respond to Pharnabasus' appeals, and to move the main theater of the war to the Hellespont. This marked a significant change in Spartan strategy. Instead of a slow war of attrition by picking off individual Athenian subject allies, the Spartans now aimed to win the war quickly by cutting off the Athenians' grain supply and starving them into surrender. The Athenians naturally had to prevent this outcome with all of their might. mindarus first dispatched the Syracusan commander Darius with 13 ships to Rhodes since he had learned that some Rhodians were banding together for a pro-Athenian revolution. Then, the rest of the fleet, 73 ships, set out from Miletus at some point in late September or early October of 411 BC. Although another storm forced them ashore at Chios, they only remained there for a few days. Meanwhile, the Athenian general Thrasyllus had heard of the Peloponnesian departure from Miletus. He was inexperienced, as he had never commanded a ship or regiment of hoplites, but he had been raised from the rank of ordinary hoplite to the office of Sartigos because of the important role that he had played in checking the oligarchic rebellion at Samos. Unfortunately for the Athenians, though, their new, inexperienced general would be forced into experiencing some growing pains. When he learned that Mindarus was at Chios, he should have sailed there at once with all Athenian ships to block the Peloponnesian fleet from getting through to the Hellespont. But instead, he set sail with 55 ships to Lesbos, while the rest stayed behind to guard Samos. When he arrived at Lesbos, he ordered preparations to be made for a long stay, intending to use the island as a base for attacking the Peloponnesian fleet at Chios. Therefore, he posted scouts along the coast and on the opposite mainland in order to prevent the enemy from moving without his knowledge, while he himself sailed along the coast to Mithymna and gave orders for them to prepare provisions as well. Previously, some Methymnian exiles had fled across the mountain to Arasos in order to gather reinforcements. Altogether, they had a force of about 300 hoplites and tried to take Mithymna. But they had been repulsed twice by the Methymnians and some Athenian guards from Mytilene. So they returned to Arasos and brought about their revolts. Thrasilus was at Methymna when he received news of this, so he immediately crossed over with five ships. But since he arrived too late to save Arasos, he anchored near the city and awaited for reinforcements. Soon, he was joined by Thrasybulus and his vessels on their way home from the Hellespont and by the ships of the Methymnians for a grand total of 67. The forces on board had brought siege engines along with them. The inexperienced Thrasilus, though, was trying to accomplish too much at once, and so he would fail in his primary goal. Mendaris and the Peloponnesian fleet stayed at Chios for only two days, while they loaded supplies for the run to the Hellespont. On the third day, they sailed out with all haste, But instead of making for the open sea to avoid the Athenian fleet at Erasos, which was on southwestern Lesbos, Mendaros succeeded in bringing his fleet through the narrow waters between the eastern Lesbian shores and the mainland. From there, they continued their voyage along the Anatolian coast. This was a route that the Athenians did not expect them to take, and by night time, they managed to slip past any detection from Methymna on Lesbos's northern shore. They managed to slip past any detection from Methymna on Lesbos's northern shore and continued north to the mouth of the Hellespont. Thucydides says that they were able to do so because the Athenians had been deceived by their scouts, and so those at Eresos were completely unaware. Finally, when they realized the Peloponnesian fleet wasn't at Chios. The Athenian lookouts ignited fire signals to inform their squadron of 18 ships at Sestos of the approach of the Peloponnesian fleet to the Hellespont. And so, by hugging the opposite coastline, these Athenian ships managed to sail down the Hellespont unobserved by the 16 Peloponnesian ships at Abydos. And at dawn, they sighted the oncoming fleet of Mendaros. However, he was able to brush aside and scatter this small reconnaissance force. While 12 managed to escape westwards to Imbros and Lemnos, three others were captured, but only one with its crew, and one was destroyed and burned. The Peloponnesians then spent the rest of the day besieging Eleos, a city-state on the Thracian Chersonese, at the entrance of the Hellespont, but were unsuccessful, so they continued on their journey. When they finally joined their squadron of 16 at Abydos, the Peloponnesians now had a total of 86 ships. With this strategic move, Mindarus had placed his fleet in position to cut off the crucial trade route for Athens' grain supply and had forced the Athenian fleet to challenge them on the ground of his choosing. From this point onwards, though, Mindarus' luck turned sour. As soon as the Athenians at Erasos heard the news, Thrasyllus and Thrasybulus abandoned their siege and sailed with all haste for the Hellespont. Although they arrived too late to keep Mendarus from joining up with the Peloponnesian fleet at Abydos, they did manage to come across and capture two enemy ships, which had drifted out too far into the open sea. The Athenian fleet dropped anchor at Aelaus and brought back the ships that had taken refuge at Ambros. For the next five days, both sides prepared for the coming engagement. Ultimately, the Athenians had little choice but to force the action and to take the offensive as control of the vital Black Sea grain route was now at stake. Since the Peloponnesians had no reason to come out into the open sea, the Athenians also were forced to engage them within the narrower waters of the Hellespont, a situation which seemed to nullify their tactical advantages. And so, from their base at Eleos, Thrasyllus and Thrasybulus sailed through the Hellespont along the north Thracian coastline, with 76 ships in a column formation. They were soon noticed by Peloponnesian lookouts, and so Mendarus at Abydos ordered his fleet of 86 ships to put out to meet them. The Peloponnesians also sailed in a column formation, but along the southern Anatolian coastline. Only 7.5 miles separated the two shorelines. As battle was imminent, both sides extended their flanks to create two near-perfect, parallel lines. By this time, Thrasylus on the left had sailed past the point of Sinosesma. It sat opposite Abydos on the Thracian Chersonese, at the narrowest point of the Hellespont, and formed a sharp angle that jutted into the strait. Therefore, the Athenian battle line projected forwards in the center, like a chevron, as they shaped their battle line to fit the point. Because of this, the Athenian fleet essentially was divided into two, as each wing was prevented from seeing what was happening on the other side. The resulting so-called Battle of Sinosesma was the first major naval engagement of the Ionian War. As both columns turned to line abreast, the Peloponnesian right wing, which sat the farthest north in the Hellespont, was occupied by the Syracusans, and their left and center, towards the entrance of the Aegean, was commanded by Mendaris and was manned with the best sailors in the entire Peloponnesian navy. On the other hand, the Athenian left was commanded by Thrasyllus, and their right and center by Thrasybulus. Although neither Thucydides nor Diodorus actually names the overall commander of the Athenian fleet, due to his position in the battle line, it was likely Thrasybulus. In addition, Diodorus's account offers an on-deck view of the battle, but misses many of the important tactical decisions made by the commanders. Thucydides has the opposite problem though, where his focus is on the battle map view, but offers no account of the actual combat. So both sources will be used in conjunction here. As the battle began, Mindarus on the Peloponnesian left quickly tried to outflank the Athenian right. He was eager to force the Athenians to respond to him, and thus to fight entirely on his terms. His intent with this specific action was to cut off any Athenian escape route into the Aegean and to force them to fight in the narrow waters of the channel. Thrasybulus countered him, though, by extending his own right wing and outsailing the enemy. But this countermeasure thinned and weakened the Athenian center, especially as they already had fewer total ships than the Peloponnesians. In addition, the point of Sinosema was at the narrowest part of the strait, where the tide was diminished and the ships were unaffected by any strong currents. This all meant that the advantages that Athenian helmsmen had on the flanks, by exploiting their superior tactics, could not be used in the center. According to Diodorus, the Peloponnesian center began by swiftly sailing forward as a compact group. They tried to press their numerical advantage by ramming the Athenian center head on. As a result, the ships in the weakened Athenian center quickly were driven ashore onto the promontory of Sinosema. No immediate help could be given to them, though, by either Athenian general, because Thrasybulus on the right, even though he could see what was happening, was on the verge of being attacked by Mindaras' ships in front of him, and Thrasyllus on the left was cut off and was ignorant of the situation, thanks to the point. Furthermore, he had to contend with the Syracusans whose numbers were about equal, and neither force could gain any meaningful tactical advantage. Although a victory appeared within the Peloponnesians' grasp in the early going, their naval inexperience and lack of discipline combined with the superior seamanship of the Athenian captains and sailors turned the tide of the battle. That's because in their confidence, at this critical juncture, the Peloponnesian line began to fall into disarray as their ships in the center broke rank and pursued individual Athenian ships that had been pushed ashore. This caused a considerable part of the Peloponnesian fleet to get tangled up near the coast. In fact, those in the center began to fight at close quarters by using grappling hooks and shipboarding by their marines. This should have been to the advantage of the Peloponnesians, as Diodorus says that they had better marines on deck. But while this was taking place, Thrasybulus had noticed how scattered and disjointed the Peloponnesian center had become. So he gave the orders for his contingent on his right, which was still trying to outflank the enemy, to continue their lateral movement and to face about, and then to launch an aggressive attack against Mandarus's ships. As a result, due to the more open waters, the expert Athenian helmsmen on their right were able to outmaneuver many of the Peloponnesian ships ram them from the side, and ultimately disable them. When Mindaras saw that his initial tactics were no longer working, he called an audible and ordered his ships to arrange themselves in small groups or even to engage in individual attacks. But this made matters even worse. The Peloponnesian left wing could not hold out for long and eventually turned to flee. This allowed Thrasybulus and the Athenian right to turn their ships and to sail against the disorganized vessels of the Peloponnesian center, most of which quickly fled also without much resistance. When the Syracusans caught sight of their fleeing allies, they quickly disengaged from Thrasyllus's ships and turned in flight as well. With the rout now complete, the remnants of the Peloponnesian fleet raced for shelter to Abydos. Due to the close proximity of the Spartan base— The faster Athenians were only able to catch up to and capture 21 of the Peloponnesian and Syracusan ships, before the rest made it back safely to Abydos. However, in the fighting, the Athenians did lose 15 of their own, mostly in the center. As the battle came to its conclusion, the tally now stood at 82 ships controlled by the Athenians, and 80 for the Peloponnesians. The scattered forces of the Athenians then came back together at Sinosema where they erected a victory trophy. Afterwards, they secured their wrecks and allowed Mindarus to collect his dead under truce. Then, the Athenians sailed to Sestos and began to refit their ships. While there, they sent off a trireme to Athens with the news of their victory. Although it wasn't tactically significant in that the military situation did not change much, the Athenian victory at Sinosema had a much larger impact. As we discussed last episode, It came at a time when the Athenian democracy had been replaced by an oligarchy, when the vital island of Euboea was in revolt, and when Athens severely lacked the financial resources to rebuild another fleet. Furthermore, the Athenians here had been forced to fight on terms chosen by their enemies, and in all likelihood, a heavy defeat and the destruction of their fleet would have ended the war on that day, as it likely would have caused a wave of new defections in the empire and the Athenians, in that scenario, wouldn't have had a fleet or the money to build one to put the revolts down. Instead, they won a victory that not only allowed them to press on, but one that had a significant impact on their confidence and morale. Even more encouraging was the soon thereafter withdrawal of the 50 Peloponnesian ships from Euboea. As mindarus had sent a Spartiate named Epicles to bring them to Abydos, in order to reinforce his battered forces in the Hellespont. However, these 50 ships were struck by a great storm as they passed the headland of Mount Athos on the right finger of the Halkidiki. Diodorus records that only 12 of the 50 survived, and managed to make it to reinforce Mendarus' fleet at Abydos. With the addition of these ships, though, the Peloponnesians once again had the numerical advantage at 92-82. to The Athenian victory at Sinosema also sprung their newly confident fleet into further action in the Hellespont. In the immediate aftermath of the battle, each side not only tried to increase the size of their fleet in preparation for the next significant clash, but they also carried out raids against the other, whenever any opportunities arose. In particular, the Peloponnesian fleet once again raided the city-state of Eleos on the Thracian Chersonese. They were able to recapture many of the ships that they had lost in the battle. However, they did not recover all of them, as the Eleazians had begun to burn them. Similarly, four days after the battle, the Athenians set out with their entire fleet northeastwards out of the Hellespont into the Propontis. This was in response to an event that happened before the Clash of Cinesemma, when the city-state of Cyzicus, located on the Anatolian coastline in the Propontis, had flipped sides to the Persian satrap Pharnabasus and the Spartan garrison commander Clearchus. So on the heels of their victory against Mindares, the confident Athenians wished to put down this revolt. On their way to Sisychus, they first sighted eight Byzantine ships at anchor near the city-states of Harpagium and Priapus, so they sailed up and routed the troops along the shore and seized the ships, adding them to their own for a total of 90 now. Then, they continued on to Cyzicus, but when they arrived, they found that it was unfortified, and so they easily recovered it. Although it is not recorded if any punishments were handed out, there likely were some. Whatever the case, the Athenian generals stayed in Cyzicus for an unspecified amount of time to set matters straight and to levy money from them. At about the same time, after visiting Tissaphernes at Aspendus on the southern coast of Asia Minor, Alcibiades had returned to Samos with his 13 ships. Although he no longer held much, if any, influence with the Persian satrap, he still boasted to the Athenians' present at Samos, that it was he alone who had prevented the Phoenician fleet from joining the Peloponnesians. And not only that, but he was able to do this because he had made the Persian satrap more friendly to the Athenian cause than he had ever been before. Alcibiades then manned nine more ships for a total of 22, and sailed southwards to levy large sums of money from the city-state of Halicarnassus. Afterwards, in late September, he sacked the island of Kos, installed an Athenian governor, and sailed back to Samos, where he won even more favor with the troops by sharing the money that he had just collected. He then stayed at Samos in order to keep watch on the movements of the Syracusan commander Darius, who had just finished putting down the rebellion at Rhodes, and returned to Miletus. However, in the aftermath of the Battle of Sinosema, Mindarus also had ordered Darius to bring his squadron of 13 ships north to Abydos. In doing so, he somehow managed to slip past the Athenians' notice at Samos. Therefore, once Alcibiades realized his folly and that Darius had eluded him, he also took his 22 ships north to reinforce the Athenians at Sestos. Also, at about the same time, those from the city-state at Antandros in the Troad region of Anatolia wished to expel their Persian garrison because of Arsaces' ill-treatment of the Delians. Arsaces was a lieutenant of Tissaphernes, and he had invited the chief men of the Delians to undertake military service for him. The Delians, if you recall from episode 98, had settled nearby at Adramitium after the Athenians purified Delos and drove them out of their homeland. But Arsaces' offer was a false one, and when the men were drawn out of their city, he had them all executed. The Spartans by this point had grown sour towards Tissaphernes, as we have seen, so it was likely after the battle of Sinosema that they agreed to help the Antandrians rid themselves of Tissaphernes' men. From Abydos, they sent some hoplites through Mount Ida to Antandros, and together the Peloponnesians and Antandrians expelled the Persian garrison from their citadel. Meanwhile, when Tissaphernes had heard that the Peloponnesian fleet had sailed from Miletus to the Hellespont, he immediately sailed from Aspendus for Ionia, intending to fix his relationship with the Peloponnesians. But along the way, he received word that the Peloponnesians had aided the Antandrians in expelling his garrison and so he finally accepted that the breach between the two sides was serious. Fearing further injury in his own territory, and in order to formally make his complaints against them and to defend himself as best as he could, he quickly sailed for the Hellespont. Along the way, he stopped at Ephesus and offered sacrifice to the Ephesian Artemis. It was at this point in the narrative, in the autumn of 411 BC, that Thucydides' account breaks off. Some six and a half years before the war would conclude. Therefore, all that we have from him must have been all that he ever made available to the public before he passed away. Because as we discussed in episode 88, he likely wrote his histories, or at least made significant revisions to it, after the war was over. Since ancient historians took his work as authoritative for the period of the war that he wrote about. A number of 4th century BC historians, including Critippus and Xenophon of Athens and Theopompus of Chios, felt no need to replicate it, and so they started their works right where his ends. In fact, Critippus is alleged to have been the editor of Thucydides' text. Unfortunately, the works of both Critippus and Theopompus did not survive, except for a few fragments of them from quotations in later sources. On the other hand, Xenophon's entire account still exists. He was a member of Socrates' inner circle and was a younger contemporary of Thucydides. He spent much of his life after the war either as a mercenary soldier in the Persian Empire or in exile as a dependent of the Spartans. His histories, called the Hellenica, or the Greeks, covers the years 411 to 362 BC. Scholars have often considered him to be a second-rate historian. Although there have been modern attempts to elevate his reputation, he generally is still criticized for his omissions and his biases, as well as his inability to understand the larger meaning of the very events that he describes. Instead, he seems to have viewed his histories as not much more than one personal memoir. He also isn't as rigorous in his collection of sources. We will talk more about these criticisms and the life of Xenophon in a future episode. Still, he is a deeply valuable source, since his Hellenica is the only surviving contemporary account that provides a continuous narrative for the last seven years of the war and its aftermath in the 4th century BC. Two very much later writers, Diodorus Siculus and Plutarch, also provide additional information with varying degrees of reliability and value. Diodorus Siculus, or Diodorus of Sicily, wrote a monumental work called the Bibliotheca Historica or the Library of History, which in 40 books covers the ancient Mediterranean from its mythic past down to about 60 BC. Books 12 to 15 in particular cover the late 5th and early 4th centuries BC. Within these books, about half of the narrative concerns his native Sicily, while the rest are about Greece and to some extent Persia. Scholars generally also consider him to be a second-rate historian, as he created his narrative largely, if not exclusively, by paraphrasing chunks of his predecessor's work. But he didn't really synthesize, though, which is what this podcast does. Instead, Diodorus generally only followed one source for a long period of time before switching over to another, and at times he often botched even this process by getting details wrong as told by his source. Therefore, with all of this in mind and since his work was written in the 1st century BC, some 4 centuries after the events in question, he must always be used with great caution, and the trustworthiness of his work depends on the much older sources that he used. Still, if one is able to filter out Diodorus' occasional blunder, his history can be extremely important in reconstructing events and in evaluating the work of other historians. It seems that Diodorus' most relied upon source was Ephorus of Kaim, According to Polybius, Ephorus was the first historian to author a universal history, and his, simply named Historiae, was composed of 29 books. Scholars believe that Diodorus was largely responsible for preserving this work for posterity by copying large parts of his writings. Despite the fact that Ephorus lived during the 4th century BC and could have spoken to many who lived through the war, scholars did not traditionally view him as a highly rated historian either. That's because he did not write analytically by dealing with each year in turn, but instead pursued different subjects thematically beyond their strict chronological place. Ancient sources such as Strabo mention this about him, and this is one of the pieces of evidence that scholars cite to argue that Diodorus copied and preserved much of his work as a way to explain his difficulty in lining things up chronologically. However, scholarly opinion would change on Ephorus, and by extension Diodorus, after the discovery of papyri fragments of a work also called Hellenica. It had been lost in late antiquity, and scholars had no knowledge that it even existed until 1906, when an extensive papyri fragment was found in the preserved rubbish heap of the ancient Egyptian town of Oxyrhynchus. It does not name its author, and although some have speculated that it is the work of Cratippus, this is not universally agreed upon, and so the author is conveniently dubbed the Oxyrhynchus historian. The fragment found in 1906 is known as the London Fragment, because it is now kept in London. But later in the century, two shorter fragments, known as the Florentine Fragment and the Cairo Fragment, were also found in the same place that evidently belonged to the same work of history. But since the three fragments came from three different copies, the book seems to have been fairly popular, at least in Roman Egypt. Although the vast majority of it is missing, it too appears to have begun where Thucydides stopped in 411 BC. And the fragments incorporated a great deal of detail, such as the names of minor individuals and places. And they also seem to keep close to the hard facts, with a plain, drier prose and without Xenophon's occasional vivid images in highfalutin language. In addition, it analyzes political institutions and includes arguments about the causes of events, something on the whole that Xenophon's work sorely lacks. Therefore, although we are unsure if it was published before or after Xenophon's Hellenica, depending on whether you believe it is the work of Cretippus or not, Scholars generally consider the Oxyrhynchus historian as a reliable, solid, and perceptive narrator of events in the late 5th and early 4th centuries BC. Some scholars even go as far as to argue that the anonymous historian's credibility should be considered superior to that of Xenophon. For example, the London fragment gives a detailed account of the mid-390s BC that confirms Xenophon's very broad narrative, but adds significantly to it, while at variance with it. In important particulars that modern scholars agree with. In addition, all that which is found on the three fragments of the Oxyrhynchus papyri is also found in the account of Diodorus. Despite this, though, it is very unlikely that Diodorus would have used the Oxyrhynchus historian as a source, because his chronology would not be so messed up if he had. Instead, it's likely that the Oxyrhynchus historian was the ultimate source for Ephorus, who in turn was the ultimate source for Diodorus. And so, because of this, scholars generally believe that Diodorus' narrative, from where Thucydides' tails off down to the end of the war, can be considered more trustworthy than other parts of his work. While Xenophon's merits, as a reliable narrative historian, have been devalued even more by its discovery. As far as Plutarch of Chaeronea, we have discussed him at length many times before. He was a philosopher, biographer, and priest of Apollo at the Temple of Delphi. He is our latest source for this time period, as he wrote in the late 1st and early 2nd centuries AD. Furthermore, his Parallel Lives is not the work of a historian, but of a biographer who explicitly aims to draw moral lessons from the lives of great men in the past. It is a series of lives of famous Greeks and Romans, arranged in pairs to illuminate their common virtues and vices. This has led many to discount his reliability, but he wrote during the height of the Roman Empire, and so he would have had available a magnificent library filled with a variety of sources, including many lost works. In fact, he even cites and refers to many comic poets and historians whose works are only known because of him. He also cites inscriptions and describes buildings, paintings, and sculptures that he saw with his own eyes. And so, because he gives us very useful anecdotes not found elsewhere, he should not be dismissed entirely. But again, his moralizing tone should always be used with caution when trying to piece together the past. In particular, two of his lives, those of Alcibiades and Lysander, provide important supplementary information during the end of the war and its aftermath. As we mentioned earlier, Thucydides stops his narrative and Xenophon starts his in the autumn of 411 BC since this is by no means a natural breaking point in the story. When beginning his work, Xenophon is clearly envisioning it to be a continuation of Thucydides' history. However, it isn't an exact continuation, as there is a bit of a gap between both accounts. Thucydides ended his with Darius and his 13 ships returning from Rhodes to Miletus, before sailing past Alcibiades at Samos to the Hellespont. But Xenophon has the Syracusan commander still at Rhodes. Furthermore, the Peloponnesian fleet, which was last reported by Thucydides at Eleus on the Thracian Chersonese, is now, according to Xenophon, at Ilion and the Troad. Xenophon also has the Athenians at Meditus on the Thracian Chersonese, although Thucydides left them at Sisychus in the Propontis. In addition, a few days later, the moderate Athenian general, Thymocares, arrived from Athens with the remaining ships that had recently been defeated off of Eretria as we discussed last episode. Xenophon then reports that the Spartans and Athenians immediately fought a sea battle again, and that the Spartans, with Hegesandridas as their commander, were victorious. But scholars are not certain where this battle took place. Furthermore, Hegesandridas, who had commanded the Spartan fleet that had earlier defeated the Athenians off of Eretria, is not known to have commanded ships for Sparta in the Hellespont, where Mendarus was still in command. It's possible, though, that Xenophon's mentioning of a first battle here was just a careless reference to that in the Euripus near Euboea, which we will mention shortly. Whatever the case, the arrival of the Syracusan commander Darius and his 13 ships sparked the next major contest between the two navies. On one unspecified day, in early November of 411 BC, Darius sailed his squadron into the Hellespont and tried to slip past the Athenians. Despite doing so under the cover of darkness in the early morning, they still were spotted by Athenian lookouts near Sygium in the Troad. Signals then were given, which informed Thrasybulus and Thrasylus at Meditis of their presence. So in response, the Athenian generals dispatched 20 of their own ships to sail out against the 13 of Darius. The Syracusan commander managed to elude this larger Athenian force, by beaching his triremes in the area around Rotion which sat northeast a bit up the coast from the city-state of Ilion, After waiting for some time, Darius then ordered his men to board their ships and to sail once again towards the Peloponnesian base at Abydos. But again, the Athenian squadron found them, this time at Dardanus, and so they were forced back to the shore. Here, instead of waiting them out once again, Darius decided to make preparations for a land fight against the Athenians. And so he disembarked his soldiers and took over the force of Peloponnesian troops guarding Dardanus, who gave his men a large supply of missiles. Then he stationed some of the soldiers back on their ships, and some in advantageous positions on land. Therefore, when the Athenians arrived and attempted to disembark, they were pelted with missiles both from Syracusan ships and from on land. Ultimately, the fighting was nothing more than a minor skirmish that wore down both sides and accomplished nothing and the athenians eventually gave up and sailed away to meditus to join the rest of their fleet meanwhile mindarus had been sacrificed into athena at ilion in the troad and so when he learned of the situation he sent word to pharnabassus for help and raced back to his base at abydos then he set out with his fleet of 84 ships to link up with the 13 of darius at dardanus for a total of 97 the athenians though were sitting across the shore at meditus so they too set out to sea to engage the Peloponnesian fleet. In the so-called Battle of Abydos, Mindarus led his right wing, positioned near Abydos, while Darius and the Syracusans were on the left, near Dardanus. Thrasyllus commanded the Athenian left, opposite of Mindarus, while Thrasybulus was in charge on the right, facing off against Darius. The battle began when the commanders on each side raised a visible signal, at the sight of which trumpeteers sounded the attack. The fighting was fierce and evenly contested for a long time, but Alcibiades' arrival towards the evening with 18 Athenian reinforcement ships from Samos was the decisive factor. At first, both sides were elated in hopes that the approaching ships had come for them, but when they got close enough, and it could be seen that Alcibiades had raised the Athenian flag from his own ship, some of the Peloponnesian ships in dismay turned in flight, Alcibiades' arrival not only tipped the balance in favor of the Athenians, but turned the battle into a rout. Ultimately, Mindaris' fleet was forced to flee back to their base at Abydos, and they suffered heavy losses along the way. That's because their forces were extended over a long distance in the Hellespont, and so many were forced to beach their ships along the shore and to defend themselves on land against the pursuing Athenians. However, they were saved from what likely would have been complete destruction thanks to the coming of darkness, a windy storm, and the intervention of Pharnabasus, who had brought his cavalry and infantry down from his capital at Daskalium to aid them. As a result, the Peloponnesians and Syracusans were able to drive the Athenians back into the sea but not before they managed to capture 30 Peloponnesian and Syracusan ships without their crews and to recover their 15 that that they previously had lost at Sinosema. Finally, the Athenian fleet retired back to their headquarters at Sestos. The next morning, they returned at leisure to collect their wreckage and to set up another victory trophy, not far from the first one at Sinosema. Once again, the Athenians commanded the waters of the Hellespont. Thrasyllus immediately sailed to Athens in order to announce their most recent victory, and to request that the Athenians quickly send an army and more ships. He and the other Athenian generals wanted to force another battle before the winter in order to annihilate what was left of the Peloponnesian and Syracusan fleet at Abydos. If Mendarus refused their offer of battle, they could then set up a blockade in order to prevent naval reinforcements, while the Athenians recovered all of the other cities that had rebelled from their empire the previous two years. But by this point, the Athenian treasury had been almost exhausted, and so Thrasyllus was neither sent out that winter nor in the spring with reinforcements for the upcoming campaign season. Not only that, but they did not even have enough money to sustain the fleet in the Hellespont for that winter, and naval support more urgently was needed closer to home, because Euboea was still in rebellion. Therefore, instead of dealing with the Peloponnesian and Syracusan fleet at Abydos, the Athenians prioritized the collection of tribute from their subject allies and the suppression of rebellions. So over the winter of 411-410 BC, while Alcibiades and a fleet of 40 ships were left behind to guard Sestos, the rest of the Athenian generals, one by one, dispersed from the fleet, each tasked with a separate mission. In particular... Thrasybulus, with an unspecified number of ships, went to the northern Aegean in Thrace, and Theramenes took 30 ships to deal with Euboea. As we discussed last episode, the Euboean rebels were being aided by the Boeotians, and together they wished to connect the island of Euboea to the mainland, presumably because it would make their joint defense easier. Therefore, they began to build a causeway with high towers and a wooden bridge across the Euripus Strait, the body of water that sat between Halkus on Euboea and Aulus in Boeotia. According to Diodorus, when Theramenes arrived, his force of 30 ships proved to be too small to defeat the troops defending the workers on the causeway, and so instead they raided the territory along both the Euboean and Boeotian coasts. After collecting considerable booty, since nothing more on Euboea could be done at that time, Theramenes then proceeded to sail his fleet around the Cyclades in order to put down oligarchies that had been established by the 400 to gather more badly needed cash, and to win prestige for the new regime of the 5,000. After he accomplished the best that he could in the southern Aegean, he sailed to Macedonia to help its king, Archelaus, who recently had laid siege to the city of Pydna for disobeying one of his orders. It's not specified what that order was, though. Since Macedonia was still the major source of timber for shipbuilding in Greece, it was imperative for the Athenians to maintain good relations with their king, especially at a time when they were in such dire financial straits. Therefore, with Theramenes' help, Archelaus pressed the siege of Pydna more vigorously. Finally, after he successfully captured the city, as punishment he razed it to the ground and transferred its population further inland, about two miles from the sea. Afterwards, Theramenes then linked up with Thrasybulus, who had been collecting funds by plundering oligarchically controlled Thassus and other places in Thrace. The combined fleets then established their winter quarters at Thassus, or some location on the Thracian coastline, from which they could quickly reach the Hellespont, in case of emergency. At some point a little later that winter, Tissaphernes finally arrived in the Hellespont, as we mentioned, he had feared that his rival Pharnabasus would gain glory and favor with Darius by defeating the Athenians, a task at which he had failed miserably. Previously, Canidas and Miletus had launched successful rebellions against him, and Antandros, with Spartan help, now had done the same, and so the Spartans not only were no longer dependent upon him, but were actively fighting against him. To make matters worse, they were sending complaints about him back to Darius. According to Plutarch, Tissaphernes had every reason to be afraid that he would be blamed by the king for this situation. So he came to the Hellespont to see how he could make amends with the Spartans and basically save his skin. When Alcibiades got wind of this, he hoped to take advantage of Athens's recent victories, and since he believed that he and Tissaphernes were still in good terms, In a single trireme, he sailed to see him with tokens of friendship and gifts. But he had misjudged the situation badly, and his reception was not what he had expected, as Tissaphernes no longer wished to have any relationship with Alcibiades, or the Athenians for that matter. He made this very clear when he had Alcibiades arrested and sent him off to be imprisoned in Sardis so that he could no longer harm the Spartan cause. Tissiphanes tried to justify this action by saying that Darius had ordered him to make war on the Athenians. It's more likely, though, would cease any further Spartan slander against him of being pro-Athenian and working in cahoots with Alcibiades. However, 30 days later, a clever Athenian rogue managed to procure a horse and escape by night from Sardis to Clazomenae on the Ionian coast. In order to get back at Tissaphernes for his betrayal and to make sure that the Spartans didn't fall for his games, Alcibiades publicly declared that he was released by him on account of their friendship. Despite what Alcibiades may have proclaimed, though, made it explicitly clear to the Athenians that he no longer held any influence with Tissaphernes or the Persians for that matter. And so, from then onwards, Alcibiades' authority with the Athenians would be dependent upon what he actually accomplished for them, and not on what he would promise to achieve through his Persian connections. Also in the winter of 411-410 BC, Diodorus records how a new civil war broke out on Corsaira. If you remember from episode 95, about 15 years earlier, the Corsairians engaged in a first civil war that came to a bloody conclusion when the Democrats brutally executed all of the oligarchs. As a result, Corsaira would remain solidly democratic for the next decade and a half. Somehow, though, and it's not mentioned how by Diodorus, an oligarchic faction either gained control of the government again, or was threatening to do so. In any case, in response, some democratic Corsairians sent envoys to the Athenians to request for their assistance. So the Athenians dispatched Conan with an unspecified number of ships to give them aid. Along the way, he collected 600 additional men from the Messenians at Naupactus, which he intended to install as a garrison once matters were settled. When he arrived at Corsaira, Conan cast anchor off of the sacred precinct of Hera, and in the mid-morning, he led his men together with the democratic Corsairians in an attack against the oligarchs. They arrested some, slew others, and drove more than 1,000 from the island to the opposite mainland. The Democrats then set free all of the slaves on Corsaira and gave citizenship to any foreigner who was living among them as a precautionary measure in case the exiles tried to return. The Democrats were not able to fully eradicate all of their opponents in the city though, and a few days later, some of those who still favored the oligarchic cause seized the agora, called back the exiles, and the civil war resumed. By nightfall, around 1,500 had been slain, and both sides had been exhausted. And so, they came to an agreement to stop fighting each other, to stop their quarreling, and to live together as one people. They also agreed to take themselves out of the war to ensure that this would not happen again. As a result, this will be the last time that we hear of Corsaira and the Peloponnesian War, and their loss was a huge blow to the Athenians' war effort. Returning back to the Hellespont, Mindaris had spent the winter repairing his vessels, sending requests for reinforcements, and making plans with Pharnabazus to sail northeastwards and attack Athenian controlled cities on the Bosporus the following campaign season. By the spring of four hundred ten BC, he had amassed a total of eighty triremes, with additions coming from the Peloponnese and from their other allied cities. And so, with preparations having been made, at the beginning of the sailing season, sometime in the month of May, the Peloponnesian fleet set sail from Abydos. Unfortunately for the Athenians, though, their generals had not yet returned from collecting money and putting down rebellions. So the lower-ranking officers left in charge at Sestos were deeply concerned that Mindarus was intending to exploit this and to sail against them. With only 40 ships of their own against his 80, they weren't willing to engage such a numerically superior force with the likely result that most of their fleet would either be captured or destroyed. Therefore, that night, they made the decision to tactically withdraw all of their ships from Sestos and sail to Cardia on the northern shores of the Thracian Chersonese. At the same time, they sent their fastest triremes to Thrasybulus and Theramenes to urge them to come with their combined fleets as soon as possible. They also sent for Alcibiades, who at that point was off for some reason on Lesbos, to come with whatever ships that he had in his possession. When Alcibiades finally returned, shortly thereafter with the six triremes, he learned that the Peloponnesians had not attacked Sestos, but continued to Sisychus, so he sent orders for the entire Athenian fleet to rendezvous back at their naval headquarters. In short order, the 40 ships returned from Cardia, Theramenes sailed in with his 20 from Macedon, and Thrasybulus with 20 others from Thassus. Including the six of Alcibiades, the Athenian fleet now numbered 86 ships, and as they were no longer at a numerical disadvantage, their generals prepared for another battle. Alcibiades ordered all of their ships to have their sails and any other superfluous weighty items removed, as was customary for triremes before battle to increase their speed and maneuverability, and then to follow him. According to Diodorus, the Athenian generals were eager for a decisive victory. The ensuing battle of Cyzicus is described by three sources. Diodorus has the longest and is far more detailed than Xenophon, whose account is short and contradictory, whereas Plutarch's description in his life of Alcibiades is not only short, but also focused on Alcibiades alone. The Athenians knew Cyzicus well, as it was a prosperous city on the northeastern Anatolian coastline It laid on a narrow isthmus, which projected far out into the Propontis, the modern-day Sea of Marmara. In fact, as we mentioned earlier, the previous year, the Athenians sailed up to Sisychus to put down a rebellion. This operation, though, required much more secrecy and surprise, so they needed to sail only under the cover of darkness. On the first night, the fleet set out from Sestos, turned left, and rode up the Hellespont, unseen by the Peloponnesian watchmen on the walls of Abydos. Along the way, they seized all small trading boats and kept them under guard temporarily so that the enemy might not get warning of their approach. They eventually stopped at Parium, near the northern end of the Hellespont. There, they received news that Mindarus had already made it to Sisychus, had besieged the city with the assistance of Pharnabasus' army, and had taken it by storm. So they immediately set out to recover it. Moving by night once again to avoid detection, the next morning, they left the Hellespont behind them and crossed the open sea of the Propontis to the island of Proconnesus, or modern-day Marmara. It sat just northwest of the peninsula on which Syzicus was located. They remained there for the rest of the day and began to make preparations to move again that evening. Once again, all local shipping was impounded and held in port in order to prevent the word of their approach from reaching Mendaris. Alcibiades even had the herald proclaim that the death penalty would be administered to anyone who tried to cross over to the mainland. As the third night drew on, Alcibiades assembled his men and fired up their spirits for the task that lied ahead of them, as his troops and rowers would be facing a difficult challenge. Sleepless hours of ceaseless rowing, followed by an attack on an enemy that had enjoyed a full night's rest. So he exhorted his men, reminding them that it was necessary for the Athenians to take back Sisychus if they wanted to win this war. Quote, for the enemy has plenty from the king, but the Athenians would have none unless they won a total victory. End quote. Therefore, if they wanted to remedy that situation, they must be prepared to tackle every kind of obstacle. Quote, you must be ready to face fighting at sea, fighting on land. Fighting on the walls. Quote. A different general might have appealed to patriotic or noble causes to get them ready to fight. But Alcibiades somehow hit the right note with a speech that could have been made by a pirate chief. Afterwards, as the heavy rain began to fall, in the darkness, the Athenians boarded their ships and set out for Sisychus risking the dangers of stormy seas in return for its concealment both of their approach and the actual size of their force. That's because the rain and mist would wrap the fleet in a cloak of invisibility and would drive watchers on the coast to take shelter indoors, while the noise of the rain on the sea would help drown out the sound of their oars rowing along the water. If you remember from last episode, Carius was the Athenian Trierar who escaped imprisonment by the 400 and reported to the fleet at Samos what had happened back in the city. Well, it was the same Carius and the Perilous who led the way as the Athenian fleet sailed down the western side of the peninsula between the mainland and the small island of Halone. But as they approached, the rain stopped and the sun came out. As a result, they were able to see clearly that 80 Peloponnesian and Syracusan ships were practicing their maneuvers far from Sisychus' harbor. Therefore, the Athenians feared that the enemy would be able to catch sight of their approach and the full extent of their fleet, so they split their forces at the Artaki promontory. Caraeus and his hoplites on the Paralos were to land and march over the hills to the northern side of Sisychus. At the same time, Theramenes and Thrasybulus were to lead their 46 ships into the little harbor to the north of the Artaki promontory and wade out of sight, while Alcibiades and the remaining 40 were to sail directly against the main harbor of Cyzicus with hopes of enticing Mendaros into a fatal trap. Once the Peloponnesian lookout saw Alcibiades' ships approaching the harbor, Mendaros took the bait, believing that this was all of their forces, and therefore he had a numerical two-to-one advantage against the Athenians. And so he broke away his ships from their drill and sailed out into the open sea with his entire fleet in pursuit. When Alcibiades' forces saw them approaching, they feigned panic and fled westwards. At seeing this, the Peloponnesians now were in high spirits and pursued after them in belief that they were about to win a great victory against a scared and numerically inferior enemy. But when Mendarus's fleet had sailed sufficiently far away from the harbor, Alcibiades raised a signal, and his triremes did an about-face in order to turn around and face the enemy. Then, each quickly locked onto a target and charged at them with their rams. At the same time, the hidden Athenian forces under Thrasybulus and Theramenes emerged from their hiding spot behind Mendarus's fleet and began to cut off their line of retreat back to the city's harbor, or the beaches close to it. Although Alcibiades' sudden charge and the appearance of the main Athenian fleet behind them took Mendaros by surprise, he had perceived the trap in just enough time before he was completely encircled, and knowing that getting to land would be their only chance of survival, he was able to lead his ships in a desperate flight towards Clary, a beach in the southeastern corner of the bay, which was the only direction still open to him. Alcibiades' squadron pursued vigorously after the fleeing Peloponnesian and Syracusan ships, and they managed to sink some, or damage and capture others, but most of Mendaris' men were able to land and beach their vessels. As the Athenian marines threw out their grappling hooks and attempted to tow away enemy ships, the Peloponnesians fought back from their own decks. At one point, Alcibiades sailed with a few of his fastest triremes for an open strip of beach to the west of the Peloponnesian fleet's location. Once they landed, he and about 300 marines and archers jumped to the shore and pursued after Mindaras' troops from the west in full battle fury. Mindarus was caught surprised once again, and so he called his troops from their ships and onto the shore. At the same time, Pharnabasus' troops, who had come up to support them, had finally arrived, and together they were able to drive the Athenians back, as Pharnabasus and Mendaris' combined army outnumbered that of Alcibiades, and they had firmer footing on the land. Thrasybulus, though, who was watching from the deck of his flagship, perceived what was taking place, and knew that unless he acted quickly, Alcibiades and his men would soon be overwhelmed by the sheer force of the enemy's numbers. So he shouted across the water with his booming voice to let Theramenes know that the assault on Cyzicus would have to wait, and instead he needed him to join his forces with those under Carius and ferry them across the bay to the aid of the Athenians from the east, while he and his marines would hurry to help them from the west. Mindaris likely was too busy with Alcibiades' forces to notice, let alone to prevent this from happening but when word finally reached him of Thrasybulus' approach, he sent Clearchus with a part of his own force and a contingent of Persian mercenaries to stop him. Thrasybulus, though, only had the marines and archers from about 23 ships. His badly outnumbered men fought with courage and determination against the numerically superior enemy, killing many of them, but they took many losses too, until finally they became surrounded on all sides. His army was about to be destroyed, But then, the combined force of Theramenes and Caraeus finally arrived from the east. Although the troops of Thrasybulus had been exhausted, their spirits were suddenly revived with the appearance of these reinforcements. Another obstinate battle thus ensued, this time with Clearchus' forces and the Persian mercenaries now being attacked on two sides. When their battle line was finally broken, the Persian mercenaries fled the field, which allowed the Athenians to defeat and to expel the Peloponnesian force left behind under Clearchus. Now that Clearchus' forces had been defeated, the troops of Theramenes rushed to give aid to those who had been fighting under Alcibiades. As a result, Mindarus now found himself caught between the troops of Alcibiades on the shore and those of Theramenes behind him. Undaunted, though, Mindarus pressed forward and divided his forces in order to face the threat, now pressing from both sides. According to Diodorus, the Athenians and the Peloponnesians here fought in a heroic battle, as many were killed on both sides. But when the Spartan commander Mindarus was killed in the fighting among the ships on the shoreline, Peloponnesian resistance dissolved, and his men panicked and fled the field. The Athenians chased after them for some distance, and it was only the arrival of Pharnabasus himself with his cavalry that halted their pursuit and what likely would have been the total slaughter of the Peloponnesian army. Still, the Athenian navy more or less annihilated the Peloponnesian fleet, as all of their ships by that point had either been destroyed or captured. In particular, the Syracusan contingent chose to burn all of their ships so that the Athenians couldn't get their hands on them. Those not destroyed were towed away by the Athenians back to Proconnesus, while the remaining Peloponnesian troops fled to safety at Pharnabastus' camp. On the next day, the Athenians then sailed back to Sisychus and entered the city in triumph. Since the Peloponnesians and Pharnabasus had now abandoned them, the people of Sisychus were forced to receive them without a fight. The Athenians then set up two trophies to commemorate their dual victories on land and sea. Alcibiades remained there for the next 20 days, during which he had his troops extort much money from the people. Though they did the city no other harm, before finally returning to Proconnesus. From there, the Athenians set out for the northern shores of the Propontis, in the direction of the Bosporus, and they extracted funds from various city-states along the way. First, they sailed to Perinthos, which received their army into their city, and then to Celembria, which gave them money but did not admit them inside their walls. Finally, they went to Chrysopolis, or the Golden City, which sat near Halcedon. There, they erected a fortified custom station in order to begin collecting a deca literally meaning tithed at a tenth. It was a 10% tax on all cargo from vessels sailing from the Black Sea to the Hellespont. This money was shipped back to Athens. Although we are unsure how much the Athenians earned annually from the tax, it likely played a huge role in the recovery of the city's depleted finances. Afterwards, while the rest of the Athenian generals returned to the Hellespont, 30 ships under Theramenes and Eumachus, were left behind to keep watch over this territory and the ships sailing in and out from the Black Sea, basically to ensure there were no disruptions to their new tax system and to their vital grain supply route. They also were tasked with attacking the enemy if some impeccable opportunity presented itself. Although both Xenophon and Plutarch give Alcibiades exclusive credit for the victory at Sisychus, Theramenes and Thrasybulus deserve at least an equal share in the praise. Alcibiades may have fought splendidly and carried out his role to perfection, but the performances of Theramenes and Thrasybulus were also outstanding, and their appearances during the battle ultimately assured Athenian success. If Alcibiades had been left to his own devices, he surely would have been driven off by the combined army of Mindarus and Pharnabasus, and the Athenians would have suffered a humiliating defeat. Furthermore, Diodorus tells us that Thrasybulus was the leader of the entire fleet, so it's probable that it was him, not Alcibiades, who had devised the excellent strategy that had worked so well at Sisychus. At the crucial moment, it was he who landed with a small force that diverted part of the enemy's army and saved Alcibiades. And no less critical was the order that he gave to Theramenes, whose subsequent arrival sealed the victory for the Athenians. And so, in actuality... As a strategist, tactician, and commander in the field, Thrasybulus played the largest part in the battle, and was the one most responsible for the victory. In fact, the Roman biographer Cornelius Nepos later writes, quote, In the Peloponnesian War, Thrasybulus accomplished many victories without Alcibiades. The latter accomplished nothing without the former. Yet he, by some gift of his nature, gained the credit for everything. End quote. In a span of just a few months, the Peloponnesians had lost somewhere between 135 and 155 ships. Even more devastatingly, the chief consequence of their string of defeats from 411 to 410 BC was that the Athenians once again had full control over the Hellespont, and as a result, had removed the threat to their Black Sea grain supply route, at least for the moment. But perhaps as significant was the reversal of Spartan morale, Neither Persian money nor their fort at Decalia had brought them a victory, and no other strategy seemed workable at the moment. In the wake of their resounding defeat, Mendarus' name was immortalized in one of the most famous examples of laconic brevity, when a dispatch, later from the Spartan survivors, was intercepted by the Athenians. Mendarus' vice-admiral, Hippocrates, was on his way to Sparta with a letter when he was captured. According to Xenophon, the intercepted dispatch reads, The ships are lost. Mindarus is dead. The men are starving. We do not know what to do. This sums up perfectly the desperation of the Spartans at that moment. The combination of the annihilation of the Peloponnesian fleet, low morale, and the fact that the Athenians had taken quite a few Spartiate prisoners once again made the Spartan authorities back home eager to seek another peace. Therefore, in violation of their treaty with Persia, in late 410 BC, the Spartans sent ambassadors to Athens to negotiate a ceasefire. It would seem then, from their willingness to make a separate peace, that the Spartans considered the third treaty with Tissaphernes to have been rendered invalid by his failure to maintain and pay their forces. Regardless, the chief Spartan ambassador here was Endius, a man close to Alcibiades. When it was his turn to speak, according to Diodorus, he set forth Sparta's proposal as this. Quote, we wish to make peace with you, men of Athens, and that each side should keep the cities it now controls, but abandon the garrisons it holds in the other's territory, ransoming prisoners, one Athenian for one Laconian. End quote. Basically, the Spartans wanted peace on the basis of the status quo at that moment. The cessation of warfare, a trade of Pylos for Decalia, and an exchange of prisoners would surely have been welcome to the Athenians. But maintaining the status quo was a different matter entirely, as this meant that they would have to give up their claim to the rest of their former territory that Sparta currently held. This included the islands of Euboea, Thassos, Rhodes, and Chios in the Aegean, Miletus and Ephesus in Ionia, parts of the Thracian Chersonese and Abydos in the Hellespont, and Chalcedon and Byzantium on either side of the Bosporus. According to Diodorus, the most reasonable of the Athenians favored the acceptance of these terms, but the majority in the Ecclesia were deceived by popular leaders who made private profit from public troubles. Chief among them was Cleophon, who Diodorus calls the greatest demagogue at that time. Like Cleon and Hyperbolus before him, he was a favored butt of satirical attacks by comic poets like Aristophanes and an object of content and loathing by more serious writers, like the Order Lysias and the philosophers Plato and Aristotle. These men, all of whom came from the upper classes, dismissed Cleophon as a liar maker a lowly craftsman with no background. He is described as a foreigner, a drunkard, a cutthroat, and a raving wild man in his public behavior. Although his style may have been vehement and forceful, this portrait no doubt is biased and inaccurate. Cleophon was an Athenian, not a foreigner, and his father served as a general under Pericles. He himself also may have been a general, as well as a member of the board of financial officials, called the Poristai. He likely did not make liars personally, though, but owned a workshop that produced them, which made him a man of means, as his father must have been, in order to get this reputation. And since the peace proposal was introduced during the Constitution of the Five Thousand. He must have been a man of at least hoplite status, though probably higher, in order to have taken part in the debate. Although there is no evidence to support the claim that he acted from motives of personal profit, he did argue against Sparta's peace offer, and for fighting on until Athens had won a total victory. And so looking back with hindsight, it's not hard to see why later upper class Athenians would come to see him as a sort of scapegoat to explain the demos' bad decisions during the last years of the war. Whatever the case, it probably didn't take too much to convince the Ecclesia that it was in their best interest to keep fighting. That's because many Athenians, no doubt, were enthusiastic about the prospects of recovering their empire in the wake of their resounding victory at Sisychus. They also had reason to hope that the alliance between Sparta and Persia would splinter. The Peloponnesians had already split with Tissaphernes, and by offering peace to Athens, they had just violated their treaty with Persia so many probably believed that it was only a matter of time before Pharnabasus abandoned his Greek involvement too. Therefore, the people ultimately voted to refuse Spartan peace terms. The fact that they did so goes to illustrate that the Athenians had regained their confidence in a victory in just three years following the Sicilian disaster, and in light of the circumstances, it's entirely understandable why they felt that way. In fact, the next few years brought about increasing success for the Athenians in the Ionian War, especially in the Hellespontine region, as the Peloponnesians were in no fit state to engage them again at sea. In fact, by the end of 410 BC, one could argue that the Athenians held a position as advantageous as they had at any point in the war. If this was their estimation, the Athenians would be wrong about one thing at least. The Persians would not abandon the Spartans. And following Sisychus, Pharnabasus set about to encourage the whole Peloponnesian army and their allies not to lose heart. He gave each man a cloak and money for two months' rations, and he armed the survivors and established them as guardians over his own territory on the coast. Then he called together their Trierarchs and generals. He wanted them to know that there was more than enough timber in the woods around Mount Ida to rebuild their fleet. So he sent them to Antandros with enough money to refit their fleet with as many triremes that each of them had lost. While they were doing that, the Syracusans helped the Antandrians complete part of their defensive walls. After these matters had been arranged, Pharnabassus then set about to bring help to Chalcedon. During this time, while the Syracusans were at Antandros, there came an announcement from Syracuse that there had been a democratic revolution in their city. And since the Syracusan generals in the Peloponnesian fleet were not connected with the popular faction now in charge back at Syracuse. A sentence of exile had been passed against them by the people. When the generals heard this news, they gathered their men together, and their leader Himocrates relayed their misfortune to them. He said that even though they had been exiled unjustly, the men should continue to show themselves to be brave and to listen to all of the orders given to them by their new commanders, whenever they shall arrive. In the meantime, temporary commanders were to be chosen from the next level of officers. But the people shouted that they wanted their current generals to stay in command, offering to serve as renegades under the banished generals instead. Hermocrates refused them, though, saying that he would not allow them to disobey the state and thus engage in civil war against their own city. He then had the men swear oaths that they will honor their new commanders, whomever they shall be. The Syracusans begrudgingly swore these oaths, but the majority of the Trierarchs went on to make a pact that whenever they returned home to Syracuse, they would bring about the return of their generals from exile. The banished generals then left Antandros, and some time later, those chosen to succeed them arrived in Miletus and took over the Syracusan ships and the army. Fear not, though, some of the banished Syracusan generals will still have a role to play in the coming episodes. In particular, since Hermocrates was a charismatic speaker and military general, his ambition would make him a dangerous exile for those back at Syracuse. However, he didn't want to lead his own men in civil war against their fellow citizens, so he accepted his exile, bided his time, and began to procure foreign mercenaries and triremes. His main problem, though, was that he didn't have the money to do so, as his estates were all back in Syracuse and likely had been confiscated by the new government. Therefore, he needed to find a financial backer. He first went to the court of Pharnabasus, where he received money even before asking for it, likely because he had in the past brought accusations against Tissaphernes to the Spartan authorities, which pleased Pharnabasus very much. After all, Pharnabasus and Tissaphernes were hated enemies. And so, with Persian money, he began to gather mercenaries and fit out a fleet for his return to Syracuse. In the meantime, he served as Pharnabasus' advisor, Further afield, the king of the Odrysian Thracians, Suthis, died at some point in 410 BC after a serious illness. He was succeeded by Amidacus, who ruled from around 410 to 390 BC. Amidacus was a personal friend of Alcibiades, and he will have an impact later in the war. So we will return to him and the Odrysian Thracians in a future episode. In the months following the Battle of Syzicus and the Athenians' refusal of Sparta's peace proposal, the Athenian government would undergo another change. As the victories in the east had been won by the cooperation of the 5,000 in Athens and the fleet at Samos, this convinced them once again that they could win the war with their radical democracy. Although it's likely that this transition had been gradual, the decisive moment came in June of 410 B.C., when the exclusive powers of the 5,000 were abolished and full political rights were returned to the entire Athenian citizen body. It's entirely possible that the splintering first occurred over the Athenian rejection of Sparta's peace offer. In this scenario, the moderates would have been among the most reasonable, as Diodorus puts it, who favored its acceptance, but the majority clearly thought otherwise and voted to reject it. Therefore, once the decision was made to continue the war, it was easy for the Athenian people to conclude that those who won at peace were no longer suitable to lead the state to a total victory, likely by learning from their previous mistake with Nicias and his faction. Therefore, the repudiation of the Spartan offer seems to have amounted to the defeat of the government in a vote of no confidence. But this is all just speculation, as neither Xenophon nor Diodorus mentions the Restoration. Although Aristotle begins a short and inaccurate passage bridging 410 to 404 BC with what is probably an allusion to it, the best evidence for the restoration is the decree quoted by Andocades in his treatise On the Mysteries, which is dated to the first Britanni of 410-409 BC, and he goes out of his way to refer to the Council of 500 appointed by Lot. It's probable that the calendar was adjusted so that a new year for the council began at its restoration. The lack of a narrative though makes it harder to pronounce on the end of the intermediate regime, but unlike the collapse of the 400, which followed a loss in the Euripus, this one followed a success, and unlike the extremists, Theramenes and Aristocrates were not put on trial. We shall see some signs of friction, but there apparently was much less traumatic change. Almost immediately afterwards, in early July of 410 BC, Aegis tried to take advantage of Athens's most recent political change by attacking the city, and so he led his army on a foray from Decalia down to the long walls. But under the leadership of Thrasyllus, who had come back to the city looking for reinforcements the previous winter, and had not been sent out again, as we mentioned, the newly united Athenians prepared a valiant defense of their city. He marshaled everyone of fighting age by the Lycaon Gymnasium, which sat just outside the city's walls, and prepared them to fight if the Spartans should choose to attack them. However, the sight of this army exercising outside the walls of Athens led Aegis to retreat back to Decalia. He inevitably wasn't expecting any resistance at all, and now that there would be some, he wasn't interested for whatever reason. Before the Spartans could escape, though, the Athenian lightly armed troops were able to pick off some of them in the rear, and their success in this minor skirmish only bolstered the new regime's confidence and elation over their recent victories. On the other hand, while Aegis was near the walls of Athens, he had seen many grain boats sailing into the Piraeus, which led him to remark that it was useless for his men to exert so much energy in preventing the Athenians from tilling their own land if they could not stop the grain that was coming to them by sea. He now fully realized that in order to win, they needed to cut off Athens' access to grain from the Black Sea region through the Hellespont. Aegis was no dummy though, so he likely already knew this strategic necessity. But seeing this realization in person probably had much more impact, or perhaps this is just a made-up anecdote to explain what happened next. Whatever the case... Aegis then sent Clearchus to Byzantium with 15 troop transports, manned by the Megarians and the rest of the allies. Byzantium was a colony of Sparta's ally Megara, and Clearchus was the Spartan Proxenos there. Clearchus, as we mentioned, had taken part in the Battle of Cyzicus. It's not stated how he ended up at Decalia, or for what purpose, but on his way back to Byzantium, three of his 15 troop transports were destroyed in the lower Hellespont by nine Athenian ships that were keeping watch over the grain route. The other 12 managed to escape to Abydos though, and from there they got to Byzantium safely. But because of their victory at their walls, and because Aegis now was making an attempt on shutting down their grain supply route, the Athenians finally voted to give Thrasyllus three reinforcements for which he had come back to Athens the year before. Unfortunately, though, these would not be ready for almost another year. The deployment that eventually left the following summer would include 50 triremes, with 11,000 men in all, including 5,000 rowers who were also equipped to serve as peltasts, 1,000 hoplites, and a 100 cavalry. At the low pay rate of three obols a day, which was the payment in effect after Sicily, the cost of this expedition would be almost 30 talents a month and the fleet would have had to set sail with several months' salary in hand. Troop and horse carriers for the hoplites and cavalry would be an additional expense, and the state would have to provide the lightly armed troops with weapons. Taking all of this into consideration, it is likely that the Athenians were so slow to respond, largely because of financial limitations, as their treasury, while it was beginning to replenish, was still not able to fund any large-scale offensive operations. At the same time, many of their former sources for imperial tribute were now in Spartan hands, and Pharnabazus had given the Spartans more money after the battle to finance construction of another fleet as large as the one that had just been destroyed. And with Persian support, they could outbid them for the services of experienced and with Persian support, they could outbid them for the services of experienced rowers. As a result, the Athenians never truly pressed the advantage that Cyzicus had given them. If they had, they might have been able to deliver a death punch right then and there. But their financial handcuffs meant that the Athenians quickly lost their overwhelming supremacy in the Hellespont and would once again have to fight in order to regain it. While the Athenians were coming up with the necessary money for a large-scale expedition, things were humming along on the domestic front. By July of 410 BC, the old democracy was firmly in place and passing fierce laws to defend itself against its enemies. The policies of the newly restored democracy form a consistent, coherent, and comprehensive program for waging war under a thoroughly democratic and effective regime. The legislation introduced from 410 to 409 BC covered constitutional, legal, financial, social, and spiritual matters, and religious matters, and helped guide a city only recently recovered from defeat and despair to remarkable efforts and astonishing success. After their experience with the oligarchic boulets, the Democrats decided to put new limits even on its Democratic counterpart by stripping away its power to impose the death penalty or fines above 500 drachma without the consent of the ecclesia or the popular courts. Another new law required members of the boule to take seats assigned to them by lot, which was an effort to reduce the influence of factions sitting together. Furthermore, the rapid change from a full democracy to 400 to 500 and back had produced considerable confusion among the people about their laws, as both regimes had changed and produced new legislation. So the Democrats now appointed a board of registrars, called the Anagraphes, to publish an authoritative version of the city's legal code. We learn from a speech of Lysias, titled Against Nicomachus, who was one of the commissioners appointed for this purpose, that what was envisioned as a short and simple task, to write up the laws of Solon, would take ten years to complete, due to further political upheaval. More on that in the future. But what we have surviving from the first phase of the commissioners' work are inscriptions in the agora, dating of 409 B.C., in which Draco's Law on Homicide was republished and various laws about the Boulé of 500 were erected in the royal stoa. In addition, since the old rules had failed to protect the democracy from subversion, the Athenians, on a decree passed by a man named Demophantus, enacted legislation to prevent any future attempt to overthrow their present constitution or for holding office under a non-democratic regime. Any citizen could bring this charge against such men, and if found guilty, they were to be declared an enemy of the people, killed with impunity, and their possessions were to become public property. Each citizen was required to swear an oath to uphold this law, and it was inscribed on the entrance to the council chamber and remained there well into the 4th century BC, so that Andocades, in a speech titled On the Mysteries, could record it, quote, I will do my best to kill by word and by deed. By my vote and by my hand, anyone who overthrows the Athenian democracy holds office under an undemocratic regime or seeks to establish a tyranny either for himself or for someone else. If anyone else kills such a person, I will consider him clean in the eyes of gods and spirits. Quote. However, no retroactive decrees were passed. Still, in the years that followed, there was a rash of politically motivated accusations aimed at former members of the 400. Although having held membership in the 400 itself was not considered a crime, trumped up charges on other matters were levied against them. These men were put on trial and many were banished, fined, or lost their citizenship rights. This aroused bitter criticism of the Democrats by some in the upper classes, as this amounted to essentially a political witch hunt. Still, the Athenian democracy behaved with relative restraint when compared to contemporary victors in civil wars and other city-states, who often put to death all members of the losing faction or exiled them in great numbers, as we have seen. Instead, the radical Athenian democrats did not enact any general executions or exiles, but were selective in who they punished and for what reason, as actions were directed against particular individuals and for specific offenses. In addition, a number of the leaders of the 400 remained powerful under the radical democracy, and even were elected to the highest offices. Among these was Theramenes, who seemed to find a place for himself in any government. The Athenians also passed a decree that honored the Argive assassins of the oligarch Phrynichus by giving them Athenian citizenship. With the restoration of their democracy, the Athenians also reintroduced payment for public service and jurors, which had been cancelled by the 400. In addition, since the war had inflicted great suffering on the poor and brought poverty to many who had previously not been needy, the demagogue Cleophon introduced the Diobelii, so named because it was a two-obal, or a third of a drachma, daily handout to the poor that was partly financed by temple treasuries. In later years, it would be increased and would come to be denounced by the rich as a form of bribery and corruption. But when it was first introduced, such members were necessary and could not have cost too much. Even so, the Athenians continued to need a great deal of money to carry on the war. And while the state treasury was almost empty, they believed that the revival of their power and prestige after Sisychus would begin to generate income again. Although subject states had already been defaulting on their payments... The Athenians, with their newfound confidence, chose to restore the old tribute system in place of the 5% duty tax on trade. The restored democracy also imposed another direct war tax, or icephora, on its wealthier citizens, which they no doubt fought back against, but were outvoted. The Athenians only resorted to this in desperate times because direct taxes of any kind were objectionable to the Greeks and, well, these were very desperate financial times. Despite their financial burdens, though, work was restarted on the Acropolis' building program, which had been postponed following the disaster of the Sicilian expedition. The new program, though, was actually very small in comparison to the great works undertaken by Pericles before the war, as it consisted of only a new parapet for the Temple of Athena Nike and the completion of the Erechtheion. Detailed inscriptions of the accounts for the money paid to the craftsmen and laborers have been found and show that not many workers were even needed, and their term of service was brief. While they were paid the standard rates, only 20 of the 71 total workers were citizens, and the rest were slaves and medics. So while the continuation of this construction program may have been portrayed as a form of aid to the needy, it's likely that it had a broader purpose as an effort to revive their spirits that the site of grand new buildings on the Acropolis would bring confidence, hope, and courage to those who had suffered terrible misfortunes. While the parapet may have been a monument to the great victory at Sisychus, completion of the Erechtheion seems to have been an act of civic piety, because the precinct contained the most ancient Athenian shrines, as we discussed in episode 65. Therefore, its completion was traditional in its aims, and was undertaken to win the favor of the gods, and to lend self-assurance and courage to the Athenian people as they faced the difficult tasks that laid ahead of them. In addition, in the Agora, a new bulletarian was built to the west of the Old One. The older bulletarian, though, remained standing and came to be used as a repository for records, and would henceforth be known as the Matrone or Sanctuary of the Mother of the Gods. In the realm of theater... With the restoration of the democracy, the elder Sophocles no longer was needed as one of the pro-Bulloi, and we see him return to the stage in style. Sophocles made his first contribution to the new genre of dramatic romance with his play Philoctetes, which took first prize at the city Dionysia in the spring of 409 BC. We discussed the play in more detail in episode 51, but it featured the rescue of the stranded hero Philoctetes from the island of Lemnos and a happy ending as he rejoined his old companions, who were the ones who exiled and stranded him, to help them win the Trojan War. Reflections of a particular context are always hard to find in Sophocles' plays, but some scholars have interpreted this particular play's and message of reintegrating Philictides into society as an allegory for Athens' problem of what to do about Alcibiades. Perhaps Philoctetes then was meant to symbolize Alcibiades, and that Sophocles was lending his support for his return. Of course, this is just speculation. It would still be another two years before Alcibiades stepped foot again in Athens, but it's likely that following the Battle of Cyzicus, in which he played a prominent role, there were some, perhaps many in the city, who wished for his return. In addition, following the Battle of Sisychus and the restoration of the Athenian democracy, from 410 to 409 BC, Xenophon and Diodorus record a hodgepodge of maneuverings that achieved gains and losses on both sides. According to Xenophon, in the winter of 410-409 BC, the Spartan colony at Heraclia and Trachus was defeated by its neighbors, the Oetians, in the course of which some 700 colonists and the Spartan governor, were killed. On the other hand, according to Diodorus, that same winter, Sparta undertook a successful campaign against Pylos, which was being held by a Mycenaean garrison. While they attacked it by land with their army, they sailed against it with 11 ships, 6 Laconian and 5 Syracusan. As soon as the Athenians learned of this, they sent a staunchly democratic general named Antius at the head of 30 ships to bring aid to their allies. But he was turned back by a dangerous thunderstorm when rounding the Peloponnese at Cape Malia, an occurrence that was not uncommon in the winter. When he returned to Athens unsuccessfully, the people were so incensed at him that they accused him of treason, and he was put on trial. Antaeus apparently believed that he was in enough danger to be found guilty by the angry mob that he preemptively chose to pay off the jury and thus save his own skin. His acquittal became notorious as the first recorded instance of bribery on the Athenian record. Meanwhile, the Messenians and Pylos managed to hold out against the Spartans successive assaults for quite some time while awaiting for the Athenian aid that would not arrive. Finally, when they ran out of food, they abandoned the fort under a truce. The Spartan recapture of Pylos, which the Athenians had held for 15 years, was even more serious of a loss than that of Corsaira the previous year, as it removed a great annoyance to Sparta and deprived Athens of a very valuable bargaining chip. Furthermore, in the summer of 409 BC, the Megarians seized control of their port of Nysiae, which had been in the hands of Athens. In response, the Athenians dispatched a 1,000 infantry and 400 cavalry under Leotrophides and Timarchus. The entire Megarian army, plus some Syracusan and Spartan troops, went out to meet them and drew into battle formation near the hills called Ta-Kerata, or the Horns. These were the hills opposite the island of Salamis, on the border between Athens and Megara. This incident is only reported by Diodorus and the Oxyrhynchus historian. Despite being greatly outnumbered, the Athenians fought brilliantly and put the enemy to flight, after killing many Megarians and 20 Spartans. Afterwards, they ravished the land, gave back their dead under truce, and set up a victory trophy. Still, the Athenians were not able to recover Nisi, another huge blow, so they returned home. When the Athenians had learned what just happened, they had mixed feelings. They were angry with the generals for acting so rashly in terrible circumstances, but they were happy that they won as it was their first victory on land against Spartan forces since Pylos and Sphacteria. Not to be outdone, the Spartans suffered reverses of their own in the late summer of 409 BC, when a civil strife broke out on the island of Thassos, which saw the expulsion of the oligarchs who supported Sparta, as well as the Spartan garrison and their commander, Etionicus. Xenophon reports that this revolt was plotted by a Spartiate named Passipidas, Together with Tissaphernes, and because of it, he was consequently exiled from Sparta. Some scholars, because of the mentioning of the involvement of Tissaphernes, believe that there was likely a mistake in the transmittance of the text over time, and that Thasus likely should have said Iassos, a small town in southwestern Asia Minor, about 20 miles north of Halicarnassus. That's because Iassus, not Thassis, was in Tissaphernes' territory. Regardless, it was also during this time that the city of Neapolis on the Thracian coast, which was the most important of Thassus' colonies, was attacked by the Thassians and some Peloponnesian forces who had been expelled from Thassos. Those from Neapolis, though, remained loyal to Athens, didn't turn their city over to the Thassians and Peloponnesians, and fended off the assault. Our information on this account comes from an Athenian decree which showed their gratitude towards Neapolis. So it seems likely that in 409 BC, there were, anti, there were anti-Spartan uprisings on both Thasus and Iassus, and either there was a genuine mistake by Xenophon or an editorial mistake by later manuscript copiers. Whatever the case, in addition in 409 BC, Xenophon records that pro-Athenian Chians were able to gain control of Chios and expel their pro-Spartan citizens, at least for the time being. Still, in total, the Athenians had lost more than they had gained in the year following the Battle of Sisychus. But a more serious problem was their failure to exploit their great victory. Although the Athenians controlled most of the cities in the Hellespont and the Aegean Islands, except for Chios, the territories of Ionia and Caria were still mainly in the hands of the Spartans and Tisiphanes, and it was particularly distressing that the vital Hellespontine cities of Abidus, Byzantium and Chalcedon were also controlled by Sparta. It would take the Athenians two years to do something about it. But before we get there, we need to go out west and follow events that will remove Syracuse as an ally of Sparta in their war effort in the Aegean and Hellespont. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, episode 105, Carthage Enters the War.